Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Tuesday night, if you're feeling a little low, going to watch a live sporting event could help. New research shows it can both lower your level of loneliness and heighten your overall sense of well-being. Why is that? We find out. And why do we stop liking new music as we get older? It all sounds alike. Bands were better in my day. You know the refrain. Well, it's definitely a matter of psychology and maybe a little physiology. We get the spin on that one. But first, it's budget day in Ottawa, and the federal government is promising a lot of new spending on health care, dental care, clean energy, and extending a GST rebate to some 11 million Canadians. But are they doing enough to balance the budget? Should we be worried about big deficits in these uncertain economic times? And there is some money in there to help fight foreign interference in our elections and our political systems. It comes amid heightened concern over China's influence attempts in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections. And we find out why Canada was so vulnerable to Beijing's more aggressive tactics. First up, though, let's head to Ottawa and talk budget. Today was the budget. It was a pretty small one, actually, at least in terms of the number of pages, but it had a sizable GST rebate that will impact some 11 million Canadians called the grocery rebate. It's been, been rebranded for the Times. Uh, transformative investments, they're calling them in Canada's green economy, money for health care, of course, and expanded dental care all while claiming that uh, they can rein in the cost of running the government. Here's what Christia Freeland had to say earlier today. We're ensuring that we can continue to invest in Canadians and in the Canadian economy for years to come, just as we have done since 2015. Because we know that investments in Canadians are also investments in our economy. Right. Well, I I don't quite know what that means. It sounded nice. But anyway, there is more to it. There's meat in here. There's substance to this document. So uh, projected spending uh, will reach nearly $491 billion in this fiscal year. The deficit will now reach $40 billion. Over the next five years, increase in spending will be nearly $60 billion. And they're no longer looking at balancing the books by fiscal 2027-2028, as they had predicted last fall. The economic situation has changed, so that's off the table. Well, to help pay for it all, the finance minister is promising to find $15 billion in savings over the next five years by scaling back government travel, its use of outside consultants, you know what a big deal that became, and a review of departmental spending. Those savings will come from government operations. Um, and I think that those savings are imminently attainable. On the political front, the NDP is happy. They got their dental care plan as they wanted. There's other social spending in there. So they will support the budget, the danger of a snap election, the politics of this sort of off the table. The official opposition, the Conservatives, they made it clear before the document was even off the presses that they were not impressed. All that they have delivered is more debt, more inflation, and more costs on the the backs of the hardworking and beleaguered people of this country. And that is why Conservatives are proud to announce we will be voting against this inflationary stand. Well, you've heard uh, the partisan takes and all that. Let's get let's get the keen eye of Kevin Page on this document, former parliamentary budget officer and the current chief executive officer of the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. Kevin, thank you. Hi, Ben. Good to be with you. So, uh, you know, the billion dollar, the multi-billion dollar question always, uh, how does this budget stand up? Do they spend wisely there? I mean, clearly the economic situation is changing, so this had to be prudent, but are, is it prudent enough and do they spend enough? 
Yeah, really good question. So uh, I think it was it was likely inevitable that this government was going to show a higher deficit track just because the economic outlook is uh, is weaker now. Um, and, and that economic outlook comes is just really an average of private sector forecast. So it's it's really an independent kind of perspective on on the outlook. And, and I think um, yeah, I think the government uh, wanted to do things like you did a really good job highlighting the measures they wanted to help um, Canadian vulnerable Canadians deal with inflation. I think we all heard we watched uh, premiers negotiating with the prime minister with the health minister on a health care deal. So we're, we're getting to see like what those numbers look like and how they impact on the framework. Um, yeah, and I think, the, and again, even though we're, we're, we're headed into this, this week period and, and we're dealing with high inflation, I think the, the government wants to continue to make these sort of down payments on, on a cleaner economy going forward. Well, we look at what's in the window. I mean, the things clearly that they were highlighting. The GST rebate is is a pretty big one. I mean, it's a pretty expensive promise. Uh, considering, uh, is it well spent? Is it is it targeted the right way? You think? Yeah, I think it's well. It's it's um, we, we've used it before. You know, in, increases in the GST credit. We we um, so I think it's 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 a, definitely it's not hard for the government to administer once the legislation or the budget gets passed. So it'll it'll get into the hands of low-income Canadians, and that's good. In addition to that measure, there's some support for students, uh, so, uh, some additional grant money and some some breaks with respect to you know, their ability to deal with interest. So I think there's definitely a recognition that inflation is coming down, but it's still high and it's going to hurt, it's hurting Canadians. But also I think there's recognition that the balance sheets, like at least going into 2023, even for low-income people on average, they don't look so bad. They're not fundamentally different than what we were going into COVID. So the government is, 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 you know, is trying to be you know, balanced with respect to the size of supports, even on affordability. We saw a lot of talk, uh, obviously, when Joe Biden was in town about uh, growing the the clean economy, so to speak, and a lot of money. But tax credits, right? I mean, this isn't these aren't grants. This is to, these are tax credits that are being put out there. Is that the right approach? Do you think? And how much pressure was there on Canada because of uh, the Inflation Reduction Act in the states, where they're investing hundreds of billions of dollars in this stuff? Yeah, I don't. I don't think we have a choice. Certainly, the U.S. is using um, like subsidies. Tax credits, uh, as you say, like to really to to promote investments in clean technology and clean energy, um, the use of hydrogen. So and we're you know so we're we're following following a suit. I think we're we're seeing the same thing, you know happen in in, in budgets uh, in Europe. So I, it's part of a, a bigger strategy, I think, to kind of make this transition. I think there's in Canada we have carbon pricing. The U.S. does not have carbon pricing. You know, we need to make investments in in in, in you know in in infrastructure as well. But I yeah, I think the government realizes this problem is, is way bigger than uh, the government itself. That we need we need to engage the private sector. In addition to those measures that were highlighted in the budget, there's also something called a growth fund, which will you know something um, really a bank account of 15 billion dollars that will be that will be provided to industries to kind of facilitate this transition and. The infrastructure bank also has something in the neighborhood of twenty billion dollars that's sitting in its bank account that'll work with a business in order to facilitate energy transition to try and get it all to try and at least encourage it all. I mean, I understand that you know Perrin Beatty was out today, the uh, talking about how there's a regulatory issue here too. But I suppose that's separate from the budget itself, right? Yeah, no, I don't think there's much new in regulation, but certainly I think uh, I think what we want the government to do is kind of uh, set these objectives with respect to 
um, you know, carbon targets uh, with respect to kind of, you know, know, the transition that we need to make towards cleaner energy. Uh, You know, so the marketplace at least knows that, you know, help facilitate uh, the pricing, you know, so you know, higher, you know, higher, higher pricing for uh, non-renewable. These subsidies will lower the prices for investments in renewable. And yeah, I think there's there's regulation. I think we know that, you know, uh, 10, 15 years, 15 years from now, or a little bit less, like you know, we will be most of us will be driving uh, hybrid or you know electric cars. And so we know we're going to be dealing with a very transportation grid. But there's there's more to come. I think this is. It has just be a series of down payments that we'll see from budget to budget. I suppose the one that may be the most impactful in the long run is the dental plan. I mean, this is a big dental care is a big investment. It's going to cost them a lot more than they thought it was going to cost. But once it's rolled out, I get the impression this is going to be a popular one if they're given credit for it. Yeah, well, I think um, I think there's probably going to be credit will go. Some of the credit will go to the, the New Democratic Party for pushing this. Uh, you know, in a minority parliament scenario, pushing this with you know with the liberals, and I think it's like it's I think it, it goes hand in hand. I think with you know the additional monies that are there for healthcare uh, coming out of COVID, we've seen enormous strains in our healthcare system, and uh, you know, we watched again you know premier health ministers that kind of negotiate these deals. Um, so I, yeah, I think it's, it's a shoring up of that system. And I think, you know, dental care having, you know, it's, it's just definitely part of a stronger healthcare system. So again, again, we'll probably see more investments. I think there was concerns as well, that the federal government's spend relative to total public spend in the area of healthcare was falling. And the premiers were certainly cognizant of that. They wanted additional support from the federal government. Well, it's budget day in Ottawa and Kevin Page is in Ottawa. He's of course the former parliamentary budget officer. That is an independent office, an oversight office. He's current chief executive officer of the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. We're talking about what was in the budget. Now let's talk about what's not in there, Kevin. I noticed there were some things, I mean, they couldn't spend on everything, but not much on housing, uh, not much on defense either. Yeah, those are, um, I think, two, you know, it's definitely two um, voids that are in the budget. Um, I, I, I think there's probably not, I think there were probably some people thought there might be more support for Ukraine, particularly in this environment that we're, uh, that we're going into. Um, yeah, and I, I think some of it then is just that, it's a, you know, in this environment, I think the government um, doesn't want, you know, with high inflation and with interest rates, um, that have gone up so significantly over the past year that, you know, they, um, they felt that they had to do their part in order to constrain sort of deficit spending so it wouldn't put upward pressure on inflation. And I think like, it's in this environment as well, like it's hard to raise revenues um, because people are dealing with affordability issues to have more broad-based types of taxes. So I think it, yeah, I think the shorter term kind of troubles with respect to, you know, the economic outlook, um, the prospects for a growth slowdown really limited sort of these other types of investments. Um, I think there's a sense that we, particularly with the high immigration that we've seen that we're going to have to do more to, you know, increase housing supply. And um, there's a pretty significant gap with respect to our defense spending. If 2% is the, is the, you know, uh, percentage GDP is the, is the, which is the NATO target. We're still quite a, you know, 10, $15 billion away from anything like that. So those are definitely two significant gaps that you've highlighted. 
Yeah, and we spoke to uh, the former U.S. ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman, last week, and he mentioned that one of the things that the Biden administration would be looking for on this visit, or Biden would be looking for, is not a jump to 2%, but at least a move in the right direction. It feels like that didn't happen today. There were some interesting sort of little things in the budget today that people tend to, journalists love to pay attention to, but uh, a universal charger on all devices, no junk fees, uh, some stuff around airports, uh, the alternative minimum tax. So some little things that were in there that might be, that might change, uh, that might, Canadians may notice if they, in fact, uh, are put into play. Yeah, and I think, Ben, it's really good that you highlighted it. I think, again, in the context of this time where we're transitioning from economy, like in 2022, grew probably a little bit more than 3%, pretty strong labor market. But now an outlook where, you know, we're probably, there'll be no growth potentially this year because of those, you know, the monetary policy tightening that we've experienced. And so we'll see an uptick in, in the unemployment rate and people are still dealing with this high inflation. So to have a number of those items that could potentially make life just a little bit easier. If, and uh, I think the more I mean, you're, you're doing the government a favor by highlighting it. And I don't think it's gotten a lot of press during the course of the day. No, I mean, I just think those are the things that. You know, we don't notice them. And, of course, the big issue here is going to be deficits, and, and that's what the opposition rightly will, will hammer on. Uh, but some of these little things are things we actually notice. I mean, I always think when you look at a budget document, the, the, the thing you want to do is try to point out to people, what, what are you going to notice at home? Right? How is this going to change your life? So some of those little things uh, might, might make a difference. So overall, Kevin, when you look at this, I mean, they're going to they're gonna take uh, some, you know, they're going to take some hits over, over the deficit, over their, their promise to balance the books and not have it. It's not going to happen in the time frame they said it would back in the fall even. Um, but overall, how would you rank this one? Yeah, I think it's given the, the nature of the environment, we have this, we, we have this, I think, the sense that we're at an inflection point with the economy that, you know, things are slowing down. You know, it's some progress too in terms of reducing the rate of inflation. But I think definitely when you look at budgets in the United States and the UK, we've seen budgets there recently. They're both showing almost no growth in 2023. You know, I think in terms of the deficits, I think you know, it's and it's probably a good thing. Canadians are a little bit upset, you know, because these deficits in the forty billion dollar range, it's you know, it just seems like do we couldn't we do better than that in this environment? But then when we look, say, south of the border, uh, we're talking about a deficit in Canada about one and a half percent. Their deficit, President Biden's deficit, is you know, it's like five and a half percentage points of their GDP. If we go to the UK. Uh, their deficit is again about the, roughly about the same level as a percentage of GDP. So it's it's like three times as higher than our Canadian deficit. So I still think, and if you look at the debt, you know, again, Canada, we're talking about debt to GDP ratios, just a little bit above forty percent. If we look at the U.S. numbers, they're closer to a hundred percent. Like right. we would be a lot more. It would be a lot more painful to look at the U.S. or the U.K. numbers here. So. Uh, but it, yeah, it doesn't. I mean, it's a. And again, it's a good thing that, that the Canadians are saying, "Come on, we if we we need to be careful. We don't add on a lot of debt. That's just we're going to pass on to future generations." Yeah, and certainly, Christopher Freeland mentioned today how acutely she is aware of of the ratings agencies and, and what a role they play, especially with interest rates and borrowing so expensive these days. Not that not that that's going to happen, but one must always be uh, aware of that too when putting out a budget like this one and spending. Yeah, I agree. And um, yeah, and I think, again, this government, if um, what was different about this particular outlook vis-a-vis, say, the fiscal update in, uh, you know, last fall or the you know, budget 2022 is that the outlook is in those in 22 and in the fall of 22, it was 
it was getting better. Now that outlook is getting a little bit more darker, and it's it's putting upward pressure on the deficit. And I think it's it's possible that if we get we can get a harder landing, that's even in this forecast that these these numbers could go upwards of a little bit, which will be disappointing. But I think it's uh, it's unavoidable in in most cases. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, to dive into uh, the budget with us on this budget day. Much appreciated. Great to speak with you, Ben. Well, I don't know how much you were paying attention to the news over the weekend, but there were two really disturbing stories that emerged, one out of Toronto and one out of Vancouver, both stabbings, random attacks, it seemed, on people. Uh, specifically, and this has been a problem in Toronto for a while now, our concern is violence on the transit system. So a 16-year-old Toronto boy uh, was attacked while he sat at Keel Station which is uh, in the West End of Toronto, in Etobicoke. Uh, the police say the attack on, on Gabrielle Magalies was unprovoked. Andrea Magalies, and which his mom and his father, Antonio, spoke about who their son was and what they hoped to see to prevent more violent attacks. 22-year-old Jordan Brian Tobin has been arrested in connection with the teen's death. Now, Gar- Gabriel's mother, the victim's mother, is a neonatal nurse in Toronto. And she had a lot to say. She spoke out because... She wanted people to hear a specific message. She spoke to Global's Catherine McDonald in Toronto yesterday. So I'm just looking at my phone and I'm calling him. He doesn't pick up. I'm texting him. He doesn't reply. Like he looked at Gabriel, he focused on him, and then he just went straight to him. I asked if he had the chance to, to fight back, but I was told he had no chance to defend himself. This guy just came with a knife. I used to feel safe in the city, but now I don't. I don't blame that one person. I think he needs help. And that was Andrea Magalies, the mother of Gabrielle Magalies, the 16-year-old stabbed and killed in front of Kiel or at Kiel subway station in Toronto uh, late Saturday. Now, court documents show the suspect had been found guilty of assault and uttering threats uh, to cause bodily harm last year. He'd been sentenced to some time in jail, 12 months probation. He wasn't supposed to have any weapons or anything along those lines intended to cause death or injury. And just the very next day here in Vancouver, in Vancouver rather, uh, a young father was, was killed in front of his wife and daughter at a Starbucks in downtown Vancouver. Again, a stabbing incident by someone he doesn't appear to have known. Uh, the j- person in question had no criminal record. But again, it is raising this whole issue about random violence on our streets. Now, again, when, when, you know, when you get a lot of attention, when you get very high profile incidents in big cities such as Toronto and Vancouver, they get a lot of attention, right? Uh, but this has been a problem for a while. Last year, the BC government tasked experts with looking into the challenges of repeat offending and unprovoked violent stranger attacks in BC communities and to come up with some solutions. Criminologist Amanda Butler of Simon Fraser University was one of those who uh, carried out that investigation, and she joins us now. Thanks for your time tonight, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this has been, I mean, this has been a tough one because these, the, of course, these incidents happen. They get a lot of attention. You hear from lots of people saying they don't feel safe on our streets. You looked into this very deeply. Uh, what exactly is going on out there? Because I know crime rates aren't up necessarily, but our perception of our safety is changing. Yeah, so, you know, I think there's a confluence of factors that are related to this. Um, You know, the study that we did in the summer, we were given only 100 days. So I wouldn't say that we looked so deeply into it. There's a lot of data that we were unfortunately not able to access. But Doug Lepard and I were um, able to to speak with, you know, 60 some odd people working within the system and across the province of BC to try to better understand what's happening. And um, I think certainly the 
uh, COVID-19 pandemic had had a real sort of devastating impact uh, on, on British Columbians for sure, and I'm, I'm certain in Ontario as well. Um, we've seen worsening mental health, um, increases in loneliness, increases in substance use, major disruptions in care, decreases in shelter beds. And so, um, you know, something like that in, in conjunction with a highly, highly toxic drug supply um, has certainly not helped matters. I think it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just so unfortunate, you know, when you hear these stories, you know, hearing um, Gabriel's mother on, on, on the news, it, it brings tears to your eyes. And I think that these cases in particular, um, they, they certainly um, contribute to perceptions of lack of safety because people can see themselves in, in these places, right? Being at the Starbucks or waiting for the bus and thinking, wow, something like this could happen to me. And so um, sort of the, the randomness of these attacks certainly contributes to the lack of, of perceptions of safety in a recent survey um, of over a thousand Canadians showed that across Canadian cities, for sure, in Ontario and, and BC, that people are are feeling um, less safe in, in the community. Yeah, I was interested that Gab- Gabriel's mom, too, though, one of the reasons she was speaking out was specifically, I mean, she's a nurse, she's a neonatal nurse, to say that we need more social services, we need more investment into physical and mental health. She touched on many of the things that, that many other people do, just not normally the family of, of victims in that situation, but clearly she felt like it was something that, that needed to be talked about. I guess people recognize um, that there are real issues out there. That there, and there are issues that need to be solved, but they won't be solved easily. This isn't something that goes away in one election in one election cycle. That's absolutely right. And we actually hear that type of perspective from victims all the time. You know, we had, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there was a young woman in BC who was the victim of, of a, a very sort of aggressive um, assault, a random attack in the summer, and she was also interviewed. And um, she's suffered grave consequences as a result. She's got consistent migraines, was concussed, and her, you know, her life has been disrupted. And, and you know, she was also able to say her perspective was that clearly, you know, uh, more help is needed. And, and we, we feel sort of like broken records, I think, because um, we know what the systemic issues are. And, and even pre-pandemic, you know, we weren't in a great place. You know, Canada doesn't have a publicly funded mental health care system. Our care for substance use disorders continues to be woefully inadequate. Um, you know, evidence-based care for mental health continues to be reserved for people who are affluent or people who have privately funded um, insurance. And so we already were not in a great starting place, you know, in 2019, 2020, uh, pre-pandemic. And we've only seen things get worse. And now we also have a, a major workforce is, issue within the healthcare system, which will continue um, to, to exacerbate problems. And I mean, one of the uh, commonalities between, between Toronto and Vancouver, where we're seeing sort of similar issues, is the extreme housing unaffordability. Um, that's directly related to all of these issues. Nearly half of renters um, in in Ontario can't afford their housing, and that's I think measured by the, you know the number of people who are spending over a third of their income on rent. We've seen unprecedented levels of people um, being evicted, and so it, that's the starting place. We can't we can't get people good care if they don't even have um, the basics in terms of housing and food, and it's it's a really severe crisis, particularly in Vancouver and Toronto. 
I know that you had uh, a large mandate, and as you mentioned, not a whole lot of time, 100 days, which is not a lot to look into it. One of the things you were charged with as well, though, was repeat offending, and I think that's become, I think there's a recognition that, that, that the acts of violence, not always, but that acts of violence are all often committed. Those prone to violence have often offended before, regardless of, mm-hmm. of what their situation within the mental health system is or their addictions, uh, that there mm-hmm. are a small group of people that seem to be responsible for a lot of the more violent activity. How did you, what did you find when you looked into that? Because that's just anecdotal. I don't know that to be true. Yeah. So again, our, the data that we received on sort of what they were calling the prolific offending file and what we sort of um, called the repeat offending file, um, the data were very limited, but, but what the, um, the urban mayor's caucus sort of established is that there is a relatively small group of people who appear to be responsible for the overwhelming um, number of, of, of repeat crimes. Um, you know, were there, we, we made a number of recommendations related to that, that the province ha- has acted on things like um, reviving the, the repeat offending uh, teams, the, the integrated teams. Um, you know, there's been a number of other measures that were included in the Safe, Safer Communities Action Plan. Um, but, you know, the reality is that the criminal justice system is not equipped to address most of the issues, the underlying systemic issues that need to be addressed. And so it, this continues to come back to um, housing, social services, health services. I think every probation and parole officer that I spoke to um, through the course of that project identified housing as their number one problem related to their ability to supervise and manage right. a person's condition because sometimes they can't find them um, and they just have no ability to, to establish the stability in, in that person's life. And so um, we still sort of have these siloed sectors that are not mandated often to collaborate. And although I think, you know, we, we talk about collaboration ad nauseum, but there really has to be a system where the metrics of success has to also be tied to the extent of the collaboration between the health social and um, and criminal justice sectors, and we're not seeing that. Criminologist Amanda Butler is with us this half hour from Simon Fraser University. We're talking about random crime, something that uh, Amanda looked into last year for the province of BC. Part of that, too, was coming up with, uh, with solutions as well. Now, Amanda, as you well know, when these things happen, people clamor for instant, for quick fixes. We want to see more security. There's certainly been a lot of attacks on how the bail system works, the catch and release uh, notion of how bail is working in this country. When you looked into it, and I know you didn't get a chance to look into it as long as you wanted to, but as part of your job, I'm sure you do too. What did you find? Where are the problems and how do you fix them? And how do you keep people safe in the meantime? Yeah. So, I mean, as you said, understandably, when we're in a crisis situation, people are really looking for that silver bullet. Um, but the reality is that the long-term sort of sustainable solutions will require a considerable investment. And so I think we really have to look across, you know, what can we kind of do immediately, but what are the major investments that we need sort of in the long term? And so most of our recommendations in the report really focused on addressing those very critical gaps in the continuum of care for people with mental health and substance use needs. So the reality from what's happening in Vancouver, at least the data that we got from the VPD, is that the vast majority of what we're calling these random violent incidents were perpetrated by people who um, very clearly had a mental health and or substance use issue, typically both. 
And so that's really where we focused our efforts. So I think, you know, if you start at the beginning of the continuum, the ideal is that we are preventing crises from happening in the first place. You know, we're in a situation in, in BC where a sizable portion of our population don't even have a primary care provider, let alone um, proper mental health care. So, you know, it really starts there. So we had some recommendations around increasing investment in civilian-led non-police mental health teams, and we've already seen the province uh, make an investment, and now they've announced 10 more teams, peer-assisted care teams, um, to support that. The other problem is that when these incidents do happen, police often have two choices. They take somebody to an emergency department or they take somebody to jail. Both of those are suboptimal for people who are in mental health crisis. We have great data to show that emergency departments are often not equipped. They're, they tend to be pretty um, anti-therapeutic environments. They're chaotic. They're stressful. They're understaffed. They generally don't have sort of what we need. So we made some recommendations around the creation of crisis response and stabilization centers. These would be places in across communities that would offer sort of no wrong door access to provide high quality mental health care. So that's sort of at the beginning of the continuum. And then further along the continuum, we had several recommendations around, um, you know, inpatient facilities that we believe need to be expanded. Um, there are inevitably some people who, uh, as a result of the severity of their illness, um, perhaps uh, hypoxic brain injury, other comorbidities that really do need, a, um, you know, perhaps a, a, a longer time in an inpatient setting. Um, and we don't have the capacity within our facilities for that, nor do we have the, the facilities that are designed appropriately for people who may be um, exhibiting violent behaviors. And so we had some recommendations around that based on what we see in some other uh, developed countries that have a more robust continuum um, so I'll just stop there and see if you have anything. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, th- I think what 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 one runs into uh, from looking at this from the outside is that you see the need for these changes, to, these incremental mm-hmm. changes to be made, and yet you see this growing frustration with these with these acts. Specifically, it seems from people who aren't actually involved in them, but people watching them from the mm-hmm. outside feel like, wait a second, our streets are going, are you know, are going to hell in a handcart, and we need to do something mm-hmm. to fix them now. And it's probably you know, you know, tougher, tough on crime, more policing, uh, more security. And you get the impression that while that may provide comfort, it's actually not going to solve what it is we're looking at now because what we're looking at now has changed. That's right. That's absolutely right. And, you know, it's it's great fuel for those who want to push a a tough on crime agenda. Um, You know, it's a real window of opportunity for those folks to be able to um, leverage these really unfortunate incidents. But uh, we know through, uh, you know, all of the times that we've had these tough on crime agendas that, that that they don't work. Um, and even with respect to, you know, the provincial, uh, you know, the directive around bail, I mean, the reality is that we have people cycling in and out of custody. Um, and even if people are, you know, in bail for a certain period of time, that provides, you know, a temporary incapacitation. Inevitably, that person uh, will likely get out of custody. Most people who go into custody are released. And so we also need better services within our custodial environments. Um, to ideally help people get better if they do end up in that setting so that when they're released into community, um, they're in you know, a better position to, to, to be leading more stable lives. But we don't have those services certainly in our prisons as it stands.
No. If you had a magic bullet, where would you fire it? Where would it be now? What's the one thing that when you looked at all of this, where's the one place you would say right away if you had to solve this? This solve is a big word. I apologize. Right away, if you wanted to make a difference, where would you put it? Would you just would you start off with that with, with providing that sort of care that people need right off the bat, places you could put people who are in mental health crisis to make sure that they're take, seem to taken care of and kept off the streets until such a time as they're okay? Um. If you are looking for sort of that immediate solution, I would uh, perhaps agree with you. But if I had a magic bullet, I think I would focus on ensuring that every person in every community has a safe place to live, um, has community supports, has access to uh, employment and income, and has nutritious food. Like covering the basics, because that would go a long way in terms of crime prevention. And then from there, I think that's where we, we certainly need to build um, the rest of the system, as we've discussed. Yeah. And for those who who can't care for themselves, because I think that's often part of the issue, too. We have people, I mean, you know, my parents at one point cared for people with, with mental health issues. Some people can't can't take care of themselves. And then now they're on the streets, right? I mean, this is part of the this is part of the issue that they have nowhere to go and no one to care for them, even though they clearly need some care. Um, you know, that, that's another issue. Yeah, that's another tough issue. Absolutely. We see that a lot. And I think... I think that, um, you know, when we when we talk about building these these facilities and, and having places where, where people can maybe live or stay for long periods of time, there are a lot of people, I think, that get their, their, back, their backs up about civil liberties. And those things are really important, of course. This is always going to be a balance. But the reality is that letting people who may have severe acquired brain injuries, developmental disabilities, neurocognitive impairment, allowing those people to deteriorate in our communities is utterly undignified. We need to have um, safe places, but also a whole continuum of community-based and outpatient and residential treatment options to cover that full spectrum. Well, Amanda Butler, thank you so much for your insight on this. Um, Yeah, we'll we'll speak again. Thanks very much. We're going to spend this half hour talking about a subject that's very dear to my heart, and that's music, and why it is that at a certain age, you seem to not only not much, not really like new music, you kind of stop listening to new music. Now, my dad was in the music business, and I've always really liked music, so I try my, my best to listen to new things. I try my best to listen to whatever's popular these days, just to see what it sounds like, just so you can, you know, have an idea what's popular out there. But, you know, if I'm hanging around with people my age, you know, born in the early 1970s, we say the same things that my parents said when I was young and the same thing their parents said when they were young, which is essentially music these days is just no good. Um, You know, it was much better when we were kids. Uh, Everything sounds the same or some similar refrain. For example... I was thinking, I wonder what's number one on Billboard these days. Miley Cyrus has been number one for eight weeks with a song that I've only heard, I think, once for like a nanosecond. She's, of course, the daughter of Billy Ray Cyrus. For those those of us of a certain vintage, she's been infinitely more successful than he was. Uh, but this is it. This is the number one song in America. Eight weeks. Now, to me, it sounds like every other song that's out there these days. So I couldn't tell you who it was, but therein lies part of the problem, right? Um, So why is it? It turns out it says more about us than the music of today. It says more about you or me, for that matter. It's part psychological. We're attached to the music of our past. We like the music we associate with our youth. You'll remember when Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill was a huge hit last summer uh, because of Stranger Things. A lot of us saw it as proof that music back then was indeed better. 
Now, not only do I recognize this song now, I recognize this song in the nanosecond that it comes on because it came out when I was 14, so 15, so of course I do. On Thursday, we talked nostalgia with Clay Routledge, who's Vice President of Research and Director of the Human Flourishing Lab at the Archbridge Institute. When people feel nostalgic, uh, they don't just feel this like sentimental like longing for the past that characterizes nostalgia. They actually get a boost to like their happiness, their sense of um, connectedness to others, their sense of meaning in life. And that applies to music, obviously, Clay Routledge. You can hear all those interviews, by the way. If you've ever missed an interview on the show, you can find them on our podcast, A Little More Conversation, anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to like it as well. And of course, it's also part physiological. It turns out our brains somehow become less able to tell music apart. So again, that's why everything sounds the same. But don't take my word for it. Frank McAndrew is a professor in the Department of Psychology at Knox College. He's a science writer. He often looks at really interesting topics using his background. You can find his work at frankmcandrew.com. I highly recommend it. And he joins us now. Frank, thanks. Well, thank you, Ben. Good way to wrap up my day. <laughs> exactly. And it is. It, I know it's late where you are in uh, in, in Illinois. Uh, like so many of this, this is something that started off with your dad, right? Who didn't much like what you liked when you were a young man. Yes. Um, I, I vividly remember one time when he was in his 80s, we were sitting there watching television together and a Beatles song came on and as part of a commercial and it was about a 50-year-old Beatles song. And my father right. very seriously turned to me and said, you know, I just don't like the music of today. And I just thought it was hilarious uh, because to me, you know, this was a song from my youth and it's 50 years old. And the fact that he thought of it as a song of today spoke volumes about when he stopped listening to music. Yeah. And you, you dug into this and you figured out that for the majority of us, we kind of all stop listening to music about, not everyone, but there's kind of a mean in there of an age where we all start, we I kind of turn our ears off. Yeah. Um, it, there's some variation in it. And some people mm -hmm. close down earlier than others, but it looks like our tastes really start to take form as early as 12, 13, 14 years old. And by the time you're in your early 20s, they're pretty well locked in place. And people who study this um, find that for most people, you stop exploring new music entirely by the time you're in your early 30s. Really? Like, that's, that's it. You kind of, you figured out, this is what I like. I grew up in this era. And then this is what, this is what I'll listen to for the rest. Like your dad, he was like, yeah, no way that, that, that newfangled stuff is awful. That 50 year old stuff. <laughs> so yeah, it, makes, yeah, it, it I, makes sense. And I don't think it's always a willful, okay, I've heard enough. I'm not going to listen to music right. anymore. Life just sort of takes over, right? And you get busy and uh, it kind of fades into the hum of the background. And it just is not something you pay much attention to. Yeah. You mentioned, I, I think you mentioned that, of course, we associate uh, the music of our youth with sort of those intense emotions, uh, all, glossed over to forget all the bad times to some extent, too, by the time you're older. So we, we associate those songs of our youth with, 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 with loving them for reasons that would seem almost, um, would seem almost ridiculous when you're older. Yeah, and it's, and it's hard to hear those songs without immediately reliving the moments, right? You, you know where you were and who you were with and what was going on in your life in a way that doesn't happen later on. Psychologists have actually uh, uncovered a thing called the reminiscence bump, uh, memories right. of things that happened to you between the ages of 10 and 30 are much more intense and, vis, um, you know, 
visual, uh, for want of a better way to say it, than anything that happens before that or later than that. And that includes the music that we listen to during those years. Now, you've said that, that, I mean, there are exceptions to this, of course, but um, it's kind of a time-honored tradition that, that we all kind of complain about the music of today. And, and, but you said that you've liked some, of, you've liked some modern stuff, too, that, that appeals to you. I mean, it's not like, not like I never hear something I, I, I like. I just don't glom onto it the way I did 30 years yeah, ago. It, you, don't it sort of, doesn't, yeah. you can listen to new stuff and say, well, that's, that's kind of nice. Um, but it's the repetition that makes it really become uh, something that matters to you. I uh, noticed that when my kids were teenagers and they were both really into music and I was listening to the music they were listening to and watching music videos with them. And I, to this day now, have a fondness for the songs that were popular then just because they came became part of my life. You know, there's something that I can associate with uh, being with my kids and at a certain time and place. Um, but then when they left and I wasn't listening to their music anymore, that new music kind of faded again. So um, you can be rehabilitated. Well, that's – and you also mentioned – I mean, I was, I was also curious about the physiology of it because you mentioned that um, in your article that, in fact, there is a reason why, as you get older, all music – seems to sound alike and that might be might not have as much to do with the music although pop music is often very similar sounding through the eras but that our brains are somewhat less capable of telling it all apart yeah this certainly isn't my specialty but i have read some of the research on this and there is evidence that um our ability to make subtle distinctions between different chords different rhythms different melodies gets worse with age. Now, for familiar songs that we already know and like, that's not a problem because we've already made a distinction between them. Uh, As you said, when you hear that first note of the song, you know what it is. Uh, It doesn't take you any time at all. And so you can fill in the blanks with the songs because you know them so well. But for older ears, when you're hearing brand new music, uh, subtle distinctions between um, different songs might get lost. You mentioned uh, at the beginning of this segment uh, when you listen to the Miley Cyrus song, well, yeah. it just sounds like all the other songs that I hear out there. Uh, it's true. And part of it is because it's unfamiliar, but part of it is we're just not as good at picking up on those small differences. So they do sound all alike. Really? It's, it's interesting how, how that all plays. So, so there is both a physiological and a psychological reason why um, at a certain age, we just tend to, to tune, out, tune out new things to a, to a certain extent, or at least we don't pay attention to them the way we did when we were young. Yeah. And I, and I don't want to overstate the physiological mm-hmm. part of it. I don't really think that's the big thing. I think it's that mere exposure effect. That's the name that psychologists give to the fact that the more exposed we are to something, the more familiar it becomes, the more we tend to like it. And this applies to almost everything. Uh, it applies to people. It applies to brand names. Uh, unfortunately, it applies to politicians as well. Uh, but it certainly applies to songs. And let's face it, when you're young, you're a teenager, you've got more time than you've got at most other times in your life. And you spend a lot of time listening to music and talking about it with your friends, watching music videos. And so the songs and artists who were popular at that time become a a comfortable, familiar part of your life in a way that really isn't possible later on when you're struggling to keep your career together, you're raising a family. You just don't have the time to 
over and over and over again listen to the same songs. Those of us uh, who are old enough to have listened to vinyl records when we were yes. young. Now, I, I know they're making a comeback. They but have, yeah. You would play them over and over and over again. And the unfortunate side effect of that was that your favorite songs on the albums got all scratched and gnarly because you played them too much, uh, whereas the ones you didn't like were still sounding good. Uh, Frank, you look at a lot of really interesting things over the years about, about just, you've talked about gossip, about clowns, why clowns are creepy. How do you sort of pick and choose the things you like to study and look into? Because there are often things that you're sort of like, oh, that's interesting. Everyday life. I'm interested in the same thing your average person on the street is. uh, But I have the kind of job where I, you know, supposed to go out there and learn new stuff about how people work. And so, uh, yeah. Uh, gossip, creepiness, um, why we hate new music, all of these fall into that category. Um, Something else I was thinking about, getting back to the music for a moment, um, something that we tend to overlook, too, in in addition to the mere exposure and how the brain works and all that, let's face it, most popular music isn't written for older people. You know, uh, as a matter of fact, when you think of all the different music genres over the years, punk, rap, hip hop, heavy metal, anti-war folk music, um, it was written to rile up older people. It was about youthful (laughs) rebellion. You know, it's not for us. (laughs) And no, that's why, you know, like, it's funny when you see an older person, you know, say, you know, I just don't like rap music. Well, you know... (laughs) If you find some 70-year-old person who likes a rap song, it's probably the worst rap song that was ever written because it just isn't the audience that it's intended for. Um, And even what the songs are about, right? A lot of times it's about young love, peer rejection, the kinds of things that younger people worry about. So, yeah, it's it's not for us. It's a young... It's a young person's game, so to speak. Yeah, we, we can, we exactly. can, we can, we can, we can listen to Kenny G because we've reached that age. We've reached that age. I had yeah, one of those right. moments. I went to, I went to see New Order and the Pet Shop Boys a few little while ago, both bands that I knew in the '80s. And I looked around me and I thought, "Wow, this is it. This is us. This is us. This is who likes. This is who likes this stuff." I mean, what's interesting though is that people who are music lovers do continue to listen quite fervently to the music that they loved. Uh, at one point in their lives, like there's not, you don't listen to less music. You just don't listen to a lot of new music. Yes, that's right. No, uh, my getting back to my father who uh, thought of a 50 year old song as the music of today. One of his hobbies, especially when he got older, was to just sit and listen to music. But really? he was listening to the old standards, you know, not not anything that was new. And those are bad. Those are all excellent. What's nice too, as you get older, is you tend to start to explore uh, because there is not, there isn't that stigma around. You should be listening to the music of your youth. Uh, that you could actually go back and listen to everyone else's great music, and you end up with kind of a wider variety of. It's interesting. I don't listen to more new music these days, but I certainly listen to more older music. Music I wouldn't have listened to up until ten, fifteen years ago. Well, you also are freed from the pressure of being cool, right? Listening True. to the right kind of music and having to apologize to people if they catch you listening to the wrong stuff. Um, you're yeah. already so out of touch now that what harm can it do, right? <laughs> well, when you put it that way, that's, that's absolutely Frank McAndrew, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for staying up late and talking to us tonight. Thank you very much. <laughs> 
the budget was out today. Of course, we talked all about that with Kevin Page, the former uh, parliamentary budget officer off the top of the show tonight. You can hear that interview uh, on the A Little More Conversation podcast once it's uh, up as soon as the show is done. That'll be available to you sometime later tonight or first thing tomorrow morning. And there was also some money in there that was uh, not a lot, but certainly addressing what is a very topical issue. Now, a lot of people complained today. I was reading a lot of reviews of where this money was going, and not all the reviews are glowing. But the problem we know well, the federal government's establishing an office to counter foreign interference and giving it nearly $50 million, or giving nearly $50 million to the RCMP to combat harassment of Canadians by powers such as China and Russia. This is really all about uh, this whole notion of foreign interference in our elections, not just China, but uh, others as well. Certainly China has been in the headlines of late. Uh, the government has said that it will spend more than $16 million to create that national counter foreign interference office in the Department of Public Safety, citing the threat of espionage. So that as well. And uh, yeah, total, it's $56 million over five years. Now, that's not a ton of money, right? $10 million a year, it's not a ton. Um, but it, it is meant to improve the RCMP's capacity to investigate these threats and work with diaspora communities at risk of being targeted uh, by that same foreign interference. All of this comes uh, in, amid this uproar into China's alleged interference in the 2019 and 2022 federal elections and the naming of former Governor General David Johnston as a special advisor to the government on the next steps, including a possible public inquiry. We'll find out about that uh, by the end of May. Uh, But what's slightly odd about this is, of course, we've been warned about it for ages. Uh, Intelligence agencies, other countries, our own intelligence agencies, politicians have been talking about foreign interference in our electoral system and our in our political system largely for a very long time now. There's been books written about it. There was the Australian experience that, that people were paying very close attention to for a very long time. Uh, China for a very long time uh, tried to influence its near neighbors, you know, places like Taiwan, for instance, or places like Thailand or Indonesia. They were, they were all this stuff was out there. It just seemed to take us a very long time to wake up to it. So the allegations of direct meddling and money flowing from Beijing operatives into the hands of some Canadian federal candidates are a sign, though, that China has ramped up its strategy in recent years, really in a way to interfere in the political processes of our country, say some who've watched this very closely. In other words, the way they've done it has always been out there. The way they've done it in countries such as Canada has changed uh, of late. Uh, Joining me now with more on this is someone who's written a lot about this over many, many years. Uh, Josh Kurlancic is a senior fellow for Southeast Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's author of his latest book is called Beijing's Global Media Offensive. It is a new book on China's evolving influence tactics, including here in Canada. And he joins me now. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for having me. So this is a, I mean, this is an ongoing debate in many countries. You know, there's there's influence where governments and diplomats do what they do, which to friend or foe, which is try and nudge governments in ways that they hope, uh, whether it be on foreign policy or business or whatever. And then there's the far more subversive tactics that we see. Perhaps explain a bit what China is up to here and how much it's changed, even just in the last 10 years. Well, China has expanded their soft power, which is more open and transparent, and which is probably less of a concern, expanding their state media, which are more openly available and more transparent. And in fact, most of their state media, like China Global Television Network, et cetera, have not been that successful. 
But China also has made a much more concerted effort in the last 10 to 12 years to directly try to influence the domestic politics and societies of other countries. They did that in the past in their near region, but now they that's expanded much more broadly, basically to much of the world. And that includes taking over basically control of virtually all the Chinese language media in nearly every country. So there isn't really any independent Chinese language media almost left in Canada. That's been a problem. So you have a fair number of people who particularly read news in Chinese in Canada, and they are getting just basically pro-Beijing stuff. More worryingly is influence in civil society, think tanks, research institutes, and student associations, where China has become much more aggressive through their diplomats and intelligence agencies at pushing these organizations to become less critical of Beijing and sometimes more openly pro-Beijing. And then finally, the third thing, which is obviously what has stirred up the most concern in Canada, attempts to directly influence politics and elections. And that is obviously a concern that's being discussed about the 2019-2021 federal elections in Canada. There was significant concern about that in Australia, where politicians were openly taking money from China-linked tycoons. There was concern, significant concern about that in New Zealand, where a member of parliament was elected who had a background where he that he didn't disclose that was linked to Chinese military intelligence. And there's been some beginnings of this in the United States as as well. Then I expect this to continue. And I I think this, the next stage is, and one that Canada and probably most other countries, including the U.S., the next stage is China targeting provincial and local politicians who are even less prepared to deal with Chinese influence operations, payments, putting people on the payroll who might not realize their background links, et cetera. They're, if you think MPs are not prepared, and I think Canada's MPs are probably less prepared than the equivalent of an MP in the US or MPs in Australia or the UK, if you, talk, you think, think they, they're not prepared, provincial and local officials are far, far less prepared. Yeah, I think we've seen seen suggestions that that has already begun to happen. There's clearly a playbook here, because having spent time in China myself, I mean, we understand that their intimate knowledge of how these systems work in other countries certainly wasn't great in the past. They must have developed a very keen understanding of where the soft underbelly is in all this and how to exploit it. Right. I mean, I think they were good at this already in their near neighborhood to some extent. They were already doing many of these things in Southeast Asia and Taiwan and to some extent in Japan before the last 10 years. But they've become more skilled at it in developed democracies outside of Southeast and Northeast Asia. Although to be fair, once they were caught in some of these places, so they're playing a dangerous game. Once they were caught in Australia, the backlash was enormous. Australia passed a really tough foreign interference law and China's image among the public in Australia, just like its image among virtually every other developed democracy in the world, is now terrible, where it wasn't always so in most many of these countries. It's not all roses for China, but I do think they have become more sophisticated in trying to figure out how they can insert themselves into politics in developed democracies 
And secondly, I think what they realized was in most of these countries, at least until very recently, and talking the last few years, there was really, really very little defense against this type of political influence. Now, that has begun to change. Like I said, Canada is in a much weaker position than a lot of other developed democracies, but uh, that has begun to change. Why is that? Why is, I mean, you know, even in your, uh, you've mentioned this before, when, when New Zealand was was confronting this, Canadian intelligence was saying that New Zealand was vulnerable amongst the Five Eyes partners, for instance, which is Australia, New Zealand, the UK, US and, and Canada. Why would Canada be specifically vulnerable right now, do you think? Canada is in a weaker position for several reasons. Canada, um, I think, for a fairly significant amount of time, There was a significant disconnect between what intelligence and law enforcement were saying and what was being conveyed to MPs. CSIS and Canadian law enforcement are a little bit more reluctant to push aggressively against influence, whereas the United States and Australia, the UK, are more willing to push aggressively. And that that has a downside. In the U.S., the FBI pushed so aggressively that they actually wound up making a lot of bad cases where they actually screwed up cases where they were wound up prosecuting a number of Chinese nationals and Chinese Americans without sufficient evidence in a way that looked from the outside to many people racist. The Biden administration shut that particular program down. So you have to be, you know, walk a fine line. But I think Canada's intelligence and law enforcement agencies were not as prepared as the U.S. or Australia's or the U.K.'s, and they didn't do as good a job of sharing that information with politicians. And then finally, I think that Canada is probably views itself in a similar way as New Zealand as less willing to take an extremely hawkish approach towards China than the United States or Australia or the United Kingdom or even increasingly a lot of European countries. Josh Kurlancic is a senior fellow for Southeast Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations. His book is called Beijing's Global Media Offensive, a new book on China's influence tactics, something that's certainly in the news here these days in Canada. In the book itself, I mean, I guess the first question is, if it backfires in terms of public opinion about China in so many places, uh, in so many liberal democracies, then why do it? Is it because we always talk about China playing the long game, and it feels like in this one, it's a bit of a short game. Uh, to to alienate entire countries with the idea of trying to shape short-term policy objectives on things such as Xinjiang or Hong Kong. If we're going to go beyond the political influence, some of the things that China is doing are more long-term and are succeeding. Like I said, taking over basically all the Chinese language media around the world is a huge boon. And then China has succeeded in getting Xinhua, which is their state newswire, to sign content-sharing agreements with news outlets all over the world, and increasingly even in developed countries like Italy and Germany, but more in developing countries, so that Xinhua gets picked up and translated into local languages. And Xinhua stories are coming out in major news outlets. And so they're going to be essentially backdooring Chinese propaganda into their news outlets. So not everything has failed in the long term. Also, I think China has done a quite successful long-term job, subtly, at changing and undermining critical discourse about China on university campuses, think tanks, research institutes all over the world, in part by intimidating student groups into being more pro-Beijing and diaspora groups. It's a big, it's a, I mean, China's, it's a big world out there for China. It's not just the five eyes in America and us. I mean, it's, there's, this is a much bigger game that they're playing and we're just part of it. 
Yeah, I mean, but I think it's true what you said, like, it's questionable why they would do some of these things that have undermined a lot of their appeal. And certainly supporting Putin hurt them badly in Central and Eastern Europe, where they had warm relations that immediately undermined that they had very warm relations in Central and Eastern Europe. Once they supported Putin in the Ukraine war, that views of China in those countries went, you know, into the toilet. There are differing views in the Chinese foreign ministry, but because Xi Jinping has continued to promote this very assertive diplomacy and very aggressive approach to the West, which is only heightened by his now increasing relationship with Putin, because China has shifted from what in the 80s or 90s or 2000s was a kind of more consensus authoritarianism where it was authoritarian, but it wasn't one man rule to what is now one man rule cult of personality. I think that they've made mistakes. You saw that with COVID. That's mm-hmm. with the co- with COVID, they dramatically undermined their own model of selling themselves to the world as this, you know, effectively managed society that somehow got things done better than democracies. And they undermined that. I think a lot of the mistakes can be due to the fact that Xi Jinping is increasingly alone and isolated and perhaps not getting or not being able to access the best advice from experts the way that despite the fact that it was an authoritarian state before, prior leaders from Deng Xiaoping to Jiang Zemin to Hu Jintao did allow experts and others to give them advice and it was a more open situation despite being an authoritarian state. When you look at how to combat this, and I think different countries are at different stages of of recognizing what this threat looks like, trying to balance that threat versus, you know, countries with large Chinese diasporas, you'd also don't want to cross the line. As you mentioned earlier, it's a delicate balance for countries such as Canada and and others. Where do you think we begin then to try to push back against the nefarious, you know, get rid of the bad, but keep the good? Countries need to invest huge amounts in digital literacy programs that start in kindergarten. Um, There are models for that. Finland and Taiwan both have good models. And that wouldn't only protect, obviously, help kids learn about to stay away from Chinese propaganda, but it would be an all around boon because it would help them learn how to determine what's real and what's fake on the Internet. So that's one. Two, countries should pass if they don't already have strict foreign influence laws that makes it impossible for foreign donors to make donations in politics and that has stricter ways to follow foreign donors or anyone who's involved in promoting foreign countries in politics. The United States has something called the Foreign Agents Registration Act that should be copied in places like in other countries. I think countries should treat the media and communication sector with the same degree of sensitivity and scrutiny that they would sectors where they could have a defense implication. So like if a foreign company wanted to buy um, a Canadian company or that was involved in manufacturing things that could have dual use for military, usually stricter scrutiny would be applied to that investment than if you were just going to buy a Canadian company that made, you know, uh, you know, I I, I don't know, T-shirts. Same thing is true in the United States, but now increasingly countries, and this is happening in the US, it's happening in Europe, are applying the same scrutiny to foreign investment in communications and media sectors, because those are sectors that are now increasingly just as almost just as important as defense sectors. I mean, and finally, the most important thing, really, frankly, is China is selling a kind of model, even though they've 
kind of blew it with zero COVID and they've alienated some of the world, but they're still selling a model in, in general that they have a type of authoritarian capitalism that because they don't have to deal with the messiness of democracy and, you know, democracy doing okay in Canada, but in a lot of the world, including the U.S., it hasn't really had its great last 10 years. They are selling a model of authoritarian capitalism that purports to be more effective at getting things done and producing good things for their people and managing things effectively than democracies. And there are definitely some, you know, non-Chinese commentators who take that view. The more that democracies from any, any, you know, any leading democracy can show that democracy for all its messiness can produce policy outcomes that actually help people and produce quality governance. So I don't mean just democracies surviving for democracy state, which is sort of where we're actually at in the U.S. here, actually just continuing democracy as a form. But democracy needs to deliver for people of successful policy outcomes. The more that that happens, the stronger the countries from Canada, the United States, to Japan, to whatever, any prominent, you know, liberal democracy has against China's model to say that we can have democracy, but also produce positive policy outcomes for our citizens too. Well, Josh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. First of all, what is maybe most important is has changed that participation of athletes with Russian and Belarusian passports in competitions and in international competitions works. Yeah, that was Thomas Bach. He's the head of the International Olympic Committee. So here's the situation. Uh, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Russia and Belarusian athletes have not been allowed to compete in most international uh, sporting events. You still see them playing tennis. Obviously, there are still players of both those nationalities playing uh, in professional leagues such as hockey and so on. But when it comes to international, quote-unquote, amateur sport, they've essentially been barred uh, for a while now. But there has been, I mean, the Paris Olympics are coming up next year. Then there's the Winter Olympics in Europe as well. So again, there's been this ongoing pressure on the IOC to come up with some kind of uh, forward, forward-looking forward statement on what exactly is going to happen to athletes from those two nations. Um, in the past, of course, they've been allowed to compete as sort of neutrals or something kind of an odd compromise to allow the athletes to be there, uh, at least. And we recognize that athletes train hard. And sometimes, you know, the, the politics of their nation isn't always a reflection of their ability or their their desire, or at least their even their, um, their what we should make of their ability to compete at these international competitions. However, however, if you listen to what he had to say, what he's essentially saying is they will allow or they're recommending that athletes, individual athletes from Russia and Belarus be allowed to return to competition under a neutral status, quote unquote, as long as they have no military links. Now, a lot of Russian athletes obviously have military links. I suspect most Belarusian athletes have some sort of military link as well. It's how they train, right? I mean, it's, it's part and parcel of it all. But they are facing increasing pressure now to ban Russia and Belarus from the Paris Olympics next year because of the war in Ukraine. And now they haven't decided on that yet, but they did open the door here to allowing Russian and Belarusian athletes back into the fold to some extent. No teams, just individuals, but still they're trying to walk a very delicate line 
Uh, and of course, there are qualifiers coming up for both the Paris Olympics and the 2026 Winter Games in Milan, Cortina d'Ampezzo in Italy. Uh, so what does this all mean? And what's been interesting about it is that, you know, athletes have become a lot more outspoken of late about uh, about issues. And this is one that they seem very outspoken about, which is you cannot let athletes come back from those countries, given the circumstances in Ukraine, to compete under a neutral flag. It just can't be done. If you know that as well as Rob Keeler, he's Director General of Global Athlete, which is Canadian-based but represents athletes right around the world. And Rob joins me now. Thanks for your time tonight. It's a pleasure to be with you today, Ben. So, I mean, it's kind of hard to make sense of exactly what the IOC has tried to do here. It feels like walk a very fine line badly. But how would you, how, what exactly have they decided? The IOC has a, a history of this type of decisions that are non-decisions. If you look at leading into the Rio Olympic Games, when we found out that Russia had undermined the complete anti-doping system by statewide institutionalized doping, the IOC continued to say that Russia would be banned, but you know, months and weeks and years later, they were not banned. They were simply rebranded and competed in these game, all the games as Olympic athletes of Russia. And I think the strategy for the IOC is to do a soft opening for Russia and Belarus to be allowed to compete internationally. And then once they start competing internationally, saying, well, now we can't refuse them access to the Olympic and by extension, the Paralympic Games. And this message the IOC is sending is very clear. And, and the message is they support war over peace and they favor Russian interest and by extension Belarus interest over every other interest of athletes across the world. I mean, last year leading into the Beijing Olympic Games following the invasion of Russia to the peaceful nation of Ukraine, we had over 500 Olympian and Paralympians sign an open letter that Russia and Belarus should be banned. Two weeks ago in, in Canada, Olympians signed a, a letter to call for Russia to be banned. And just today, over 300 international fencing athletes have called for Russia and Belarus to be banned. And, and that, those calls don't come easily for athletes because they know how hard it is to, to compete on the international stage. But Russia has no separation of state and sport. The majority of athletes competing in Russia are military service people or work for the law enforcement agencies in the country. In fact, over 70% of the medals won in Tokyo at the Olympic Games were run by, won by military service people. You know, all you have to do is look what's happening in Ukraine and the fact that we, we've seen 232 athletes being killed, 443 sport facilities destroyed, 40,000 athletes forced abroad and 140,000 young athletes in the country without sporting facilities. So to say business as usual, let's Russia back, let's let them compete, is very short-sighted from the IOC and clearly shows the power and the tentacles that Russia has in the Olympic movement and over the IOC, because the IOC continues to favor politics over principle and war over peace. There are some caveats here, but it feels like, I mean, they specifically said, I believe today, that no decision has been made for Paris, the, the next summer games. But as you mentioned, this feels like a, a soft opening, that no athletes with connections to the military will be allowed in. But that seems very hard, to, very nebulous in, in a lot of ways. But how have they tried to soft pedal this? Because they didn't come out right out and say, you know, that's it. They're back in 100%. They've tried to soft pedal this. Well, they tried to soft pedal to, so the IOC is about headlines and always trying to get headlines and to confuse people. 
And if we look at leading into the Pyeongchang Olympic Games, in December 2017, when the Russian anti-doping scandal was happening, the IOC announced that Russia would be banned from the Olympic Games, only to be followed up in January 2018 by their ban will be not really a ban, they'll compete as Olympic athletes of Russia. So the IOC is playing the same game here in terms of opening a crack so they can open the floodgates for Russia to compete. They're not a trusted source. They always play with with media and headlines, and they always leave athletes left behind. And very rarely do they listen to to athletes' concerns. And that's been our concern of ours and and athletes globally, that the IOC favors the, the Russian authorities over anything else. And for some reason, which a lot of us can't understand, of why they bow to Putin's regime and allow them to really wreck and ruin sport for many, especially Ukrainian athletes. What was discovered after Sochi was was mind-boggling, the, the, the systemic doping that was going on there. Then, plus with this invasion, I mean, they'd already invaded Ukraine, um, you know, back, back when they, in 2014, here they are with the further invasion. And you're right, Ukrainian athletes have been punished by this. They can't train at home. A lot of them can't develop on their home territory anymore. But again, and, and of course, you represent athletes, and you, you've mentioned it, athletes have been quite unequivocal about this one, and that if listeners forget, is not an easy choice for one athlete to say another athlete shouldn't be there. Yeah, and, and even for our organization, at times it was hard to, to grapple with it. But after speaking with, with athletes globally, you know, the, the banning of Russia and Belarus is a small price for the atrocities that the Russian authorities are, are doing in, in, in their invasion of Ukraine. You know, at a certain point in time, the IOC has to decide where they fit in this world. And right now, they're on the wrong side of history because they're an organization that sells themselves on uniting the world, promoting peace. And by allowing Russia in, it's not going to promote peace. It's actually going to empower the Putin regime to divide the West, to say the West, this is a Western conspiracy, that our invasion is illegal and and it's a war crimes. And they will say that the International Olympic Committee and the world of sport has allowed us in, and, and our invasion is, is justified. And they'll use every ounce, as they've done in the past, to use sport as a geopolitical mechanism to support their raging war on the peaceful nation of Ukraine. Rob, one thing that really struck me about this is that we seem to have entered a time when athletes are feeling a lot more emboldened about speaking up about what they think is right or wrong when it comes to their own sports and and competing both domestically and internationally. And it feels like the IOC is now running into this, being reminded that, wait a second, people don't pay to come and see the IOC at these things. They pay to come and see the athletes. Yeah, it's a harsh reminder for the IOC that they are not the ones that are the most important people in sport. They've been been able to go for years without being challenged. And I really see the turning point was when the pandemic hit, uh, when the athletes called for the IOC to suspend the Tokyo Olympic Games four weeks than they were asking to do, and the athletes forced that position. So I think what we're seeing is the power of the collective, athletes realizing they have a voice and they have power in the system, and they have the right to change it. Because certainly the IOC is not bringing athletes into the fold to have open discussions. They're actually using athletes to as pawns that are like-minded to them to try to support their decisions. And it's a little bit ridiculous how the IOC is managing this, even when it comes to the Russian athletes. And they're making things up as they go along. They said just recently that they will allow any Russian athlete that denounces the war 
to compete in the Olympic Games. Well, well good, good luck with that. <laughs> good luck. Well, with that. Yeah, yeah, because because it's a crime in Russia to denounce the war. So now yeah. they're putting athletes at, at risk from Russia. So I, I think the athlete advocacy roles are are being enhanced. I think athletes are finding power in numbers and no longer accepting the status quo. The, the whole saying of shut up and dribble is the thing of the past. Athletes know they have a voice. Athletes want to make sports safer and better. And and out, out with the old IOC regiment of the male, pale, stale leaders running sport. And now it's time to get athletes around the table with an equal say and help sport grow and not damage it like the IOC is doing. What could happen here with athletes? Because as you mentioned, I mean, 300 fencers, I, I assume that's almost, that's most most competitive sort of top-notch fencers in the world have come out against this. Where do you think this goes from here? We don't have that much time until next summer's Olympics in Paris. Uh, how do you think athletes are going to group around this one? Well, athletes are going to rally. Uh, that's a guarantee. And I've already been spending my whole day speaking with and, and communicating with athletes based on what the IOC announced today. In fact, tomorrow there's a press conference being held with athletes, uh, led by the Ukrainian athletes, with some pre- pretty prominent names. For example, Dominic Hasek is joining the call from, right. from the Czech Republic to to call for the, the ban. So the IOC is not going to see this wave end. And we're proud to work with every athlete out there that wants to see justice. Justice is that until Russia and Belarus leave Ukraine, they must be removed from international sport. And, and athletes feel very strongly about that, and rightfully so. Yeah, and, and will the IOC bend? They seem to seem to think they've found the perfect compromise here. At least that's the that's the tone we were hearing today. You know, I can only speak on on the past, and right. you know, athlete advocacy has changed. As, as I mentioned earlier, has forced the IOC to postpone the games. They've forced the IOC to allow athletes the right of freedom of expression at the Olympic Games to talk about social and racial justice, which they've never had the right to do in the past. They've had to relax Rule 40, which is allowing athletes to to use their likeness and their names and thank their sponsors during the games. So I, I think there would be pressure, there will be pressure, and, and eventually the IOC cannot ignore this pressure because the one thing it does when you turn athletes away, you start to hurt the brand. And when athletes are not supporting the brand, sponsors aren't going to support the brand. If sponsors don't support the brand, the Olympic movement dies. And, you know, it, it's time to to get out of the bubble, which they're in, and, and listen to the athletes. And not only the athletes, we've had over 30 nations call on the IOC to ban Russia and Belarus. So it's not just one constituency. It's, it's a collective. Uh, and that pressure, I don't think, is going to slow down. If not, it's going to increase. The IOC has never been, from as long as I can remember, an honest and true partner to athletes. What an interesting turn of events it would be after those boycotts of the 76 Olympics, 80, 84, the other things that have happened since Sochi. Would it be interesting if it were athletes, finally, who pushed this, who pushed this so that countries that commit war crimes were held responsible and not allowed to compete at the Olympics? Yeah, and you mentioned the word boycott. Is <laughs> This is another thing the IOC is doing, is placing athletes who are peacefully living every day, and, and especially athletes in Ukraine who are defending themselves, forcing them to go to the Olympic Games and compete against a nation that is raging war. There's two nations of the 206 that should be sitting uh, sitting out of these games, and that's Russia and Belarus. Rob Keeler, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me. Wow, 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 wow.
fairly nearly is baseball season, isn't it? Uh, live sports. I don't mean watching them on TV. I mean going to watch sports live is always been something that I've enjoyed over the years. And it's not just watching the event, right? It's it's the walk. Now, especially I lived in England for a while, so if you're going to a soccer match, there's sort of the walk to the venue, and you all kind of walk in together. So there's that there's that walk. There's the stop at the pub before you go in. Uh, same, you know, I grew up in Montreal, so going to the old Forum, going to the Bell Center was always great. Where I am now, I still go to junior hockey games uh, because there is no bigger team here. But all of it is kind of fun. It's always fun to go see live sport. I don't do it as much as I'd like to. I work at night, makes it a little more complicated, but it is always a good time. Went to see a Seattle Kraken game not too long ago, took the monorail, you know, the monorail they built for the World's Fair when they built this, uh, the Space Needle, took the monorail from downtown uh, to the area where the rink is and got off. And it was just all, the whole journey is fun. And it turns out that going to do that is actually good for us. Um, if you're feeling dissatisfied or lonely, you know, you may want to grab some tickets to a live sporting event. Now, it helps, of course, if you like sports, clearly. And the researchers who did this work are also looking, are now going to look into what it may mean if you go to something else, like a concert, for instance, um, or the theater. But we're going to stick with sports here. So the study that's just out, published in something called Frontiers in Public Health, looked at data from about 7,000 16 to 85-year-old people living in England. This is a remarkable data set that's been going on for years now. And asked them questions about their lives and well-being and included questions about whether they attended sporting events. And they figured out that, in fact, there were higher levels of life satisfaction and lower levels of loneliness for those who said they attended live sporting events. Now, there's still more work they need to to do to determine exactly what causes all this. But the results were pretty impressive. And there could even be a public health uh, aspect to all this. If you're feeling a bit lonely, uh, why not go watch a sporting event? There's sort of this sense of community that comes together. Again, when you do the walk, when you sit down, when you go uh, during intermissions or breaks, when you go and, you know, go to the canteen and so on, go to the concession stands, there is this kind of shared community thing that many of us um, sometimes lack, right? So I think sports probably pays into all, plays into all of that. But to explain all of it is the lead reporter of said, said report, lead author of said uh, report, Helen Key. She's the head of, head of the School of Psychology and Sports Science at Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge in England. And she joins us now. Helen, thank you so much for your time. What a fascinating study. Hi, Ben. It's lovely to meet you today. Yeah, this is, this is a really interesting study because I'm sure, uh, as, as I think you mentioned, you made a lot of people really happy with, with this one. Uh, but what did you set out to find? Like, what, what was the premise to, to, when, you, when you set out? Well, we came across this really large data set uh, of data that the government had collected across the whole UK population. And we were really excited to, to look at what they had measured. So they had measured all sorts of uh, health measures and mental health measures and a lot of information about the general activities that the population engages in. So we were excited about this and particularly coming out of the pandemic, we were very interested in measures around mental health, so not just physical health, but mental well-being, and also about whether, you know, loan, the effects on loneliness, what we can do for the population that might have an impact on people's sense of loneliness coming out of this pandemic. 
Yeah, that's a remark. I think that data set has been used quite a few times. That's a remarkable data set right across from, uh, goes back about 50, 60, 70 years, doesn't it? It does. And we're really lucky to have it because it, it, it accesses a range of participants aged from 16 all the way up to, to the late 80s. And that's wow. really difficult data to collect. So we're just so lucky to have this resource available to us. So you set out to find if there's a correlate, I gather, to see what the impact perhaps of going to live sport is, uh, which is a really interesting one because I don't think I'd seen anything along those lines before. Yeah, I mean, just personally, I've always been very interested in it. Um, I was brought up attending lots of live sporting events as a child, whether it was soccer or rugby. And I was very interested in 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 that feeling of being part of a crowd. So it wasn't just about the, the sporting event for me or who won the match. It was that feeling of togetherness uh, and, and what that kind of sense of community that that gave. So I've always been really interested in that and haven't really had the opportunity to have access to such a large data set on this topic uh, until now. So what did you wind up finding? I mean, I think we all, anyone who's been to a live sporting event knows that it's it's about half of what really matters happens on the pitch or the ice or whatever it may be, the field. The rest of it is going for, going for, the, for the burger or the pint or the tea or whatever it is that you do. There is that social thing that happens within a stadium when you're all watching the same event. That's right. And and the interesting thing about the data is when people have looked at sporting events before and attending live sporting events, they've really, you know, honed in on one specific niche event like racquetball um, or right. else they've just looked at elite sports, for example. Whereas here, everything was was just amalgamated together. It was going to your local uh, community football match all the way up to elite sports, which was quite nice. So what we found uh, was three really neat findings. Firstly, as you may expect, uh, attending live sporting events any time over the last 12 months significantly reduced your sense of loneliness. And this wasn't just looking at loneliness on its own. We looked at all sorts of uh, demographics about the people involved. So obviously we took into account people's gender and age and employment status, things like that, because these things we know affect people's sense of loneliness. So we looked at all of those measures and what we were interested in is whether there was an effect on loneliness above and beyond these measures. That, that's really key here. You have yeah. to really control for all of these things that we know affect loneliness. And we found that, yes, attending a, a live sporting event uh, lowered, reduced people's sense of loneliness above and beyond any of these other things that affect our sense of loneliness in our lives. And there was we also, also found two, oh, two sorry, other really neat findings, not just on loneliness, but on other measures of well-being. So the, the, two, the two that stood out were your sense that life is worthwhile and your sense of life satisfaction. So looking at life satisfaction, in general, we know that life satisfaction increases as we age. We tend to get more satisfied with our lives as we age. And we found that attending a live sporting event over the last year had as much of an impact on your sense of life satisfaction as aging by about 20 years. So that's really, really? nice. That's, that's a neat, yes. Yeah, yeah that's, really that's, neat that's a remarkable number. Yeah. That's, that's right. So you don't have to wait 20 years to, no, to age watch, naturally. You can you go can watch your team lose a on a Saturday. <laughs> yeah, that, was, exactly. that was what I, th- what I thought about, though, looking at it is that, you know, I'm, I, you know, clearly I have been to live sporting events many over the years, big and small. And, and they can be they can be quite torturous as well if they're losing. Right. So but it didn't matter whether it was win or lose. You still had that sense of community and, and being around other people, having a shared passion or a shared outcome. 
You do. And I mean, I think we could really start to tease these things apart, if, if, you know, looking into further research about whether your team won or lost, because we know even just pass just passively watching sporting events on the TV, we know that if your team wins, it can it can transfer onto your own sense of self-esteem. It's called basking in reflected glory that when your team wins, you know, you tend to wear the jersey out the next day or for the following weeks. Uh, and it just feels really, really nice. So so there are these independent effects of your, your team winning uh, that can be gotten even just from watching TV at home on your own. Uh, but, but this is tapping into something else, I think, especially when we look at that loneliness uh, effect. It's about being part of that crowd. I certainly think it's tapping into something about coming together for that common purpose, for that common goal together in a community i'm sure you know yourself that when you're you're part of a when you're a spectator when you're part of that audience at a sporting event that there's no discrimination everybody is 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 if you if you're there supporting the same team everybody is welcome everybody is part of that same group and that's really quite rare in our lives to just be automatically accepted into a community it's, it's a beautiful thing yeah, and, and ever rarer to some extent, at least in person. I mean, we, we do a lot of it online. And it begins, I guess, with the walk to the to the to the stadium or the park or the rink or wherever it is you're going. There's a whole ritual involved with how it works that, that is part of part and parcel of it. That's right. And I think something I'd really like to to look into is you know, is it about the sporting event or is it about this, this, these other aspects of coming together, the ritual, the preparing to go out, the, the, the pint afterwards. And, and something we might look into is whether attending other live events that, that are kind of similar. So attending a live music event, for example, mm-hmm. would we see the same effects or is there really something special about the sporting aspect where you're, you're rooting for the same team? So you're not just passively, you know, watching a music event, you're all there together rooting there's an in-group there's an out-group you're on board with a community of people i'd really love to investigate that further yeah and I, I realize there's probably more you want to dig into in, in all of this but you found that it didn't matter whether you were going to see you know the elite world teams whether it be in soccer or in hockey or whatever or something or just your local team down the down the street all of it brought a certain up in your in your sense of well-being that's right and i think that was a really nice finding because if we want to recommend that that you know for example that the government might support well-being in the population by giving free or cheaper tickets to live sporting events it's really nice to know that it's actually across the whole gamut it's it's you know your local football team or a, any example of you know your local going to the local baseball park is is going to have an impact uh, in the same way maybe that going to an elite sporting event would you just touched on it, and that was uh, another interesting part of your study, was that you did look at, at and I, I gather you have to do some more research into this, but that there could be public health benefits here. I mean, loneliness is one of the things we've talked about as being one of the real serious health issues, mental health issues out there, physical health issues out there right now as well, and that this may be, could be, a way of alleviating some of that, specifically for if you're a bit of a sports fan, it always helps. Absolutely. I think when we're looking at measures like life satisfaction, loneliness and, and sense that, that life is worthwhile, the, the effects we found look quite small, you know, a few percentage points. It's, it, they don't look massive, but actually they're above and beyond the effects that we have for age or gender or other things that we know are, are significant and meaningful. And we know that things like life satisfaction are so strongly linked to your mortality, to so many aspects of your physical health. They just, they really affect all parts of our life. Being able to tap into this one measure of life satisfaction, for example, it's going to have a lot of public health benefits. It's going to save 
the government money um, on health, and it's just going to give us a happier, healthier population. Where would you like to go from here with this, Helen? I realize that the data set itself, because I'm sure I've done other, I've done interviews with people, other people who've come at this data set from completely different directions. This is such a rich data set, and I can't wait to to get set loose on it again. Right. Um, so, so I think. I think I would like to look at this aspect around attending live music events. Uh, like I said, I'd like to look at other aspects of health. So, so that the physical aspects of health of, the, of attending these events as well, there's so much to look at. Is it about, you know, sharing cultural interests with people? Is it about rooting for the same team? And um, what are going to be the knock on effects that we can, we can make recommendations to the government about, but this is such a, a rich stream of information for us. Well, Helen Keyes, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ben.